Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It is a hurricane tonight, and it's expected to be a major hurricane when it hits the U.S. mainland. John Berman here in for Anderson. And yes, President Trump has indeed tweeted something insensitive and obnoxious about the Americans in Puerto Rico now being sideswiped by Hurricane Dorian. More on that shortly. First, just seconds ago, we got a new update from the National Hurricane Center, which means brand new and troubling details about just how big the storm is, how big it will get, and just where it's headed. CNN meteorologist Alan Chinchar joins us now. Allison, I understand the headline here is getting stronger. Yeah, and you can see that both when you look at the satellite images and then also when you read the numbers. The most significant thing is it had a big drop in pressure going from 997 down to 990. This may not sound like that important, but that's a big drop for a tropical system in a short period of time. Winds are still at sustained at 80 miles per hour, gusting up to 100 miles per hour. But the key is that it's now moving entirely over open water. That is fuel for a storm like this, which is why we're seeing it intensify. Also now, we're beginning to see that eye wall begin to take shape. That is also another indication that the storm is strengthening. Here's the thing that you don't often necessarily see that at night. It needs the sun. It needs the heat of the day to help intensify. So there's going to be a lot of information that comes out of this once we wake up tomorrow morning and really see what the storm has done overnight tonight. There is a NOAA Hurricane Hunter flight in there right now taking all these new measurements. Again, they did pick up a wind measurement of about 83 miles per hour. More significantly, we talked about that storm intensifying. Here's a look at where the track is expected to take. In the short term, it's going to be out over open water, not necessarily hitting any land, but that's a good thing in terms of the storm because that allows it to intensify. There's nothing to really weaken the storm in the short term. Long term, the question, where does it go from here? It's going to start to curve back towards the state of Florida. And in fact, just about almost the entire state of Florida is in the cone of where a potential landfall point could be and perhaps making landfall as high as a Category 3 storm. The question is why Florida? Because by all normal circumstances, these storms always want to veer north always under normal atmospheric conditions, but that's not the case here. Normally this storm would start to curve back towards the Carolinas and Virginia, but this high pressure system right here is what is effectively steering it and pushing it west towards Florida. All of the models right now end up making a landfall somewhere over Florida. The American models tend to favor more of a North Florida landfall, say Jacksonville down to the Space Coast, whereas the European models favor more of a landfall point south of Orlando. This is really what we're going to have mm. to keep a close eye on over the next couple of days. But one other thing, John, they could end up having two landfalls because the storm may end up actually going back out over the Gulf of Mexico and curving back around, making a second landfall sometime next week. And when will the first landfall be or could it be on Florida? Right. So right now, the timeline looks to be Sunday night into early Monday morning. Whether it goes further north, that would be a little bit delayed versus a South Florida landfall being a little bit more on the earlier end of that timeline. And all of this has to do with this warm, open water and now nothing in its way, correct? 
Yes, and even the Bahamas, for the most part, is different than, say, Hispaniola or Puerto Rico. They don't have the elevation that those other countries do. You need that elevation mm -hmm. to break these storms apart. But because the Bahamas is a relatively flat country, there really isn't much in the way for this to break apart the storm. And the temperatures, John, hovering in the mid-80s. That is perfect fuel for a storm like this. And, of course, the Gulf of Mexico warm also. Two potential dangerous landfalls in the mainland U.S. Allison Chinchar, please keep us posted throughout the night. All right, we're going to speak shortly with the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee about administration efforts to redirect disaster relief money as this hurricane is hitting toward enforcement efforts on the southern border. Right now, though, something else that shows just how far the president might be willing to go to get his border wall, the one Mexico was supposed to pay for, then tariffs were, now we are. But this is yet another twist. It's potentially unlawful and possibly impeachable. Or maybe, as the White House says, it's all just a joke. In other words, when the president did what we're about to tell you about, which, by the way, no one is directly denying, some aides suggest he was only kidding. Kind of like individual one walks into a bar, that sort of thing, apparently. So here's what the president did. Two officials tell CNN he's so desperate to build the border wall by Election Day, he recently told aides he would pardon them for any laws they break to get it done. The Washington Post broke the story, and we'll hear in a moment from one of the correspondents who did the reporting. First, this White House claimed that it's all just a joke that we don't get, all said with a wink and a smile. Like this one, calling Democrats traitors for not applauding at his State of the Union address last year. Can we call that treason? Why not? I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country very much. His press secretary at the time said the president was clearly joking. Her assistant called it tongue-in-cheek. Other defenders called it sarcasm, which the president has also invoked after remarks such as this one. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. The president, in his written answers to Robert Mueller, said, quote, I made the statement quoted in question 2D in jest and sarcastically. One problem. The Russians didn't take it that way. They started hacking within hours. Unless, of course, the president was also being sarcastic when he said he was only being sarcastic. There are many other examples, too. What they share is that none in any way actually resembles a joke, not in form and especially not in content. What they also share is the teller's demonstrated dishonesty which is press secretary, the seldom seen Stephanie Grisham, today flat out denied, telling the Washington Post, quote, I don't think there are lies. I think the president communicates in a way that some people, especially the media, aren't necessarily comfortable with. A lot of times they take him so literally. I know people will roll their eyes if I say he was just kidding or speaking in hypotheticals, but sometimes he is. The question now, seriously, was she joking? when she said the president doesn't lie. Perspective now from The Washington Post's Nick Miroff, who shares a byline with Josh Dossie on this pardon story. So, Nick, based on your reporting, what did the president actually say about pardoning officials? So the president said to aides who were worried about both the pace of the, of the contracting process, the procurement process, the environmental concerns, as well as the eminent domain issues involved with taking large amounts of private land along the border. Uh, when they expressed those worries, the president said, don't worry, I'll pardon you. 
Um, and this was, uh, uh, you know, and, and we've, we were told this by uh, people who were in those meetings with the president at the time. And did they take it as a joke? They did not take it as a joke. In fact, um, the president has said this repeatedly to to his aides and to visitors at the White House who are working on this project. And uh, there have been moments when, uh, for example, his former chief of staff, General John F. Kelly, had to later reassure some of mm -hmm. those aides that the president uh, didn't really mean it and not to follow his instructions. And just to be clear, what exactly exactly is he pushing these aides to do before the election when it comes to the wall? So the president is under extraordinary pressure to deliver on his 2016 campaign promise to build a wall along the border. So far, the Army Corps of Engineers has built 60 miles, all of it replacing um, fencing in, in areas where that fencing was uh, older or dilapidated. Um, but the president promised a border wall and feels like he has to deliver. He has told his supporters that he's going to build 500 miles by next year's presidential election. And um, Homeland Security officials and, and the Army Corps of Engineers have said they are on track to build 450 miles. And so the president wants them to hurry up. He wants to be able to mm -hmm. point to this as an accomplishment, and he's hungry to take mm -hmm. it as a, uh, to be able to claim it as an achievement. And, and as you've reported, his staff wants pictures of it to prove that it's going on. You're also reporting about comments the president made to lawmakers about how effective of a deterrent a wall would actually be. What can you tell us about that? That's right. I mean, the president has acknowledged in, in, in meetings with lawmakers that he realizes a, a wall along the border, a, or a large fence, uh, which is which, what it really is, um, will not make as mm -hmm. large a difference in deterring illegal immigration as other measures, um, including the kinds of uh, legal and administrative um, authorities that, you know, that he's been mm -hmm. seeking uh, to be able to deport more people mm -hmm. faster, that type of thing. Again, yes, the wall doesn't do anything about the asylum issue, and that's really the big problem right now, people are presenting themselves. The wall doesn't stop people from simply surrendering at the border, which is what's happening. And just to be clear, you made this point a moment ago. The president tweeted this afternoon, quote, the wall is going up very fast despite total obstruction by Democrats in Congress and elsewhere. If you're talking about new miles of wall where wall has not been, that's factually untrue, Correct. That's right. So, so far, the, 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 the administration hasn't completed a single mile of, of fencing or barrier in a place where none existed before. They've completed 60 miles of replacement barriers, and their plan is to uh, install about 110 mm -hmm. miles of barriers in places where there is currently no fencing whatsoever. I also want to point out that the president has been changing his mind about some of the design requirements that he is passing along to Homeland Security and the Army Corps of Engineers. And in May, he directed uh, those agencies to paint the wall black. The wall is to be painted black, and he also wants it to be spiked on top with sharp points, which he thinks will be more of a deterrent to people who might consider trying to climb it. He has reasons for that, his own theories. But the fact of the matter is, by making those changes or additions, it adds extra costs, which would reduce the total number of mileage? That's correct. So the the cost of painting, for example, 175 miles of uh, of barriers is going to be as much as one hundred and thirty three million dollars, according to mm. uh, the government's own calculations. And that is going to reduce the amount of uh, of 
of fencing that, that they will uh, ultimately be able to build. All right, Nick Miroff, terrific reporting. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Good to be with you. More perspective now from two people familiar with the president's thinking and the way he works. David LePan served as DHS spokesman under President Trump and former White House attorney James Schultz, who is currently a CNN legal commentator. David, I will start, want to start with you. You worked for this administration and this president. Would it surprise you if the president did, in fact, offer to pardon people who broke the wall, broke the law, I should say, in order to get his wall built? Uh, no, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and, and again, I think the, the issue here is all the confusion after the fact. Uh, you know, the question is, was the president joking about pardoning people? Was he joking about breaking the law? Was he joking about building 500 miles of fence before uh, the next election? I mean, there are all these elements that have gone unaddressed. Well, what does it matter if the people who were in the room didn't take it as a joke, took it literally and took it as an order. Now, that's a great point, because, again, for all of us, words matter. For the president of the United States, it's even more important. So there should never be any doubt of any of the people who work for or support the president about exactly what his intent is. He should be clear. And if there's doubt in their mind about whether he's joking, whether he's serious, that's going to cause confusion and people are going to get out of line and do things that they weren't supposed to be doing. And I will note, if he was joking, and there's no evidence, in fact, he was based on the reporting that's coming out of that, it'd be hard for those people who took him literally to find that out after they broke the law and didn't get pardoned. That would be a heck of a time to find out he was only kidding, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely. And, and again, I'd be hard pressed to go ahead mm -hmm. and, and knowingly break the law with this idea that there might be a pardon for me. Uh, what kind of guarantee is there that that's going to happen? If I break the law, I'm held accountable for breaking the law, not the president. Jim, how do you see this? And to be clear, this isn't the first time that the president has reportedly suggested pardoning people who break the law to get things done that he wants to get done. Look, I don't think there's any question that the president said that in the meeting, but the context of it is just you know, we don't know how it was said and we don't know how it was taken. A lot of this is is somewhat speculative. But one thing he do, he wasn't kidding about is the fact that he wants to see a border a border fence built and he wants to see it built in a, in a fast and efficient mm -hmm. manner. And look, he has a right to be frustrated with bureaucracy getting away of, in the way of construction of that fence. I've worked in government for mm -hmm. a lot of years off and on. I've seen what bureaucracy does to construction projects. In Pennsylvania, when I was general counsel, we had a, to just get bridges built. We had to do a rapid bri bridge replacement program to get through the permitting process and the construction and the procurement process. That's not unheard of in government that you're going to want to get through those processes quicker in order to get something accomplished. No one's going to argue that government tends to slow things yeah. down as it relates to construction projects when compared to the private sector. Bureaucracy, and that's what the bureaucracy is with. a pain in the neck, Jim. There's no question about that. But were you serving in the White House counsel's office, as you did, and someone came to you and said, hey, Jim, the president just told me to break the law. What should I do? What would you say? 
First off, nobody came to me and said that when I was in the White House. But, uh, but I'm saying now, there, there are people who are in this issue. meeting. There were but, people in and, this meeting. And you're meeting giving me a hypothetical said, that just wouldn't happen. There's no one in that meeting that took that as an order to break the law. But, but no one but in yet, their right the, mind the reports, was going to walk reports, out of there and think that the, the White reports, House Counsel's Office the reports, and the Department of the Justice was going to go through Post, a process the Washington Post, to give a pardon CNN, to the these New York folks Times, for breaking a law. No one's taking that seriously. There are three reputable news organizations all now reporting that in this meeting, the president said, if you have to break the law to get this done, I will pardon you. So, frankly, everyone's saying it happened right now. The distinction is whether I or not... I, it, I haven't disputed that it happened. There you go. So I, not I, even I you are disputing it. What I'm happen. saying is if, if I, there is someone who took it, if there is someone in the meeting who took it to be an offer of a pardon if you broke the law, and it's, so it's not a hypothetical, it happened... What would the White House counsel's office, if you were in it, say to that White House staffer or administration official? That that's just not right. And, and don't take it literally. That's exactly so what So don't do it. Say. You would say, and don't reassure- do it. Don't break the law. You would say, don't break the law no matter, no matter what the president of says? Of course you would say that. You know, of course you would say that, do not break the law. And, and that person that's coming mm-hmm. to you, if they're coming to you and asking, was he really serious about that? The answer to that question in the senior staff is likely to be No. He wasn't serious about that. But what he is serious about is breaking through the red tape in order to get this wall built. I will note that likely isn't definitely in this case. But there's another issue here uh, that's serious as well. And, David, I want to put this question to you. The reporting from Nick Miroff is the president's conceding to lawmakers that while he cares about the wall, there's no question that he cares about the wall. The wall in and of itself won't stop the biggest part of the illegal immigration problem right now, which is the asylum process and asylum seekers. That's a pretty glaring admission, given that he ran on the wall. The wall seems to be where his primary focus is, correct? That's correct. And, and another um, talking point that there has been on the wall is that its effect on stopping drug trafficking into the United States, uh, which is also not accurate. Most drugs enter the United States through ports of entry, not only across the southern border, but in airports and ports. A, a wall is going to do nothing to stop that. The, the humanitarian crisis at the border, not just asylum seekers, is, is women and children. Again, they are not deterred by a wall. In fact, as you noted earlier, we've seen photos of migrants coming to the border and walking up to the fence that exists there now and waiting patiently for Border Patrol to open the gate and let them in so they can request asylum. And Jib, to be sure... This isn't to say that the the border officials I speak with and I know you speak with don't want the wall because most that I speak and do say a wall would be helpful. But they also officials want it. Exactly. However, 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 at the exact same time, they will tell you that they wish that is not where the focus was at this time because it would not help or affect the asylum crisis that they see going on. So why doesn't Congress get off the couch and do something about it? That's what I have to say. They, the, the Democrats in Congress can get off the couch and do something about this now. They choose not to. They choose not to work with the president on, on, a, on a global approach to how to deal with the immigration crisis at the border. Just today, they were upset that, you know, that, that, that the president was diverting funds to add additional beds and additional funds as it relates to the, to the, detention, to the courts and, and the detention centers along the border. At a time when they're saying that there are problems along the AOC went as, lo- as far as to say that they were like concentration camps along the border. There's all of this, uh, you know, that the sky is falling along the border. Yet when it comes to doing something, they just sit on the couch. 
You gave me a segue to our next segment, Jim. I appreciate that. The idea of diverting FEMA money as a hurricane hits to address the border. Jim Schultz, David LePan, thanks so much for being with that with us tonight. On the issue of priorities, what about sending FEMA money to the border and what the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee has to say about that? And later, the president's former defense secretary opens verbal fire on the commander in chief. What retired General James Mattis says about his old boss in leadership? As we mentioned at the top of the program, President Trump did not wait for the intensifying Hurricane Dorian to pass to take another shot at Puerto Rico. He tweeted, and I'm quoting here, Puerto Rico was one of the most corrupt places on earth. Their political system is broken and their politicians are either incompetent or corrupt. Congress approved billions of dollars last time, more than any place else has ever gotten, and it is sent to crooked polls, not good. Last night, you heard the mayor of San Juan praise the effort federal authorities are making to help this time. But as for the president himself, she advised him to, quote, get out of the way, unquote, and let them do their jobs. That said, as we reported last night, the administration is siphoning money out of the FEMA disaster relief fund, at least $155 million, to be used for border enforcement measures. Joining us now is Congressman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi and chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. Mr. Chairman, thanks so much for being with us. First of all, what does it say to you that the president couldn't resist slamming Puerto Rico just as they were bracing for a potential hit from Hurricane Doria? Well, you know, that's who Donald Trump is. Uh, He's a bully. Uh, He talks about American citizens and it's all about him. Uh, In the time that Puerto Rico is being faced with another disaster, he talks about uh, the people there uh, who are American citizens. And unfortunately, in the midst of all of this, He's diverting money that should be going to the disaster relief effort uh, for a manufactured crisis uh, that he created along the border. So uh, for the people in Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands and uh, not too long, Florida, uh, we'll get it right. Uh, Maybe Donald Trump will come to his senses and understand that as president of the United States, he's obligated uh, to help Americans in time of need. You say the diversion of these funds could have deadly consequences. How? Well, there's no question. Uh, We're in the midst of hurricane season. Uh, We have a number of disasters uh, ongoing. Uh, Who knows? But, Mr. President, you created the disaster along the border, and now you're diverting much-needed FEMA funds uh, to this effort. Uh, More importantly is we don't even have anybody in charge uh, at FEMA. Uh, We have an acting director. Uh, There's just so many other things uh, the president could be involved in other than uh, making light of the people Mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico and obviously uh, this manufactured crisis along the border. Uh, This Remain in Mexico policy is a Trump-initiated policy that they are now admitting is not working. So for whatever reason... Uh, he just throws taxpayers' monies around uh, uh, like it uh, grows on trees. And so Democrats are prepared to work uh, with this administration if they want to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have to sit and talk to people as if they're adults. Nobody's a child. So if the, this administration is willing to talk mm-hmm. to Democrats, Democrats are prepared to sit and work out 
uh, common mm -hmm. solutions for our American problems. You've criticized the diversion of the funds from FEMA uh, to the border, and Speaker Pelosi called it stunningly reckless, stealing from appropriated funds, she says. But is that really the case? Don't get funds, don't funds get transferred all the time between agencies under the same department? Well, yeah, they do. But they, usually the transfer in this instance should be for extenuating circumstances. Uh, there's no real extenuating circumstance along the border uh, because we just gave uh, the largest appropriated amount in the history of the department for immigration and other purposes. So what the president is trying to do is to satisfy his base that he's doing everything he can uh, to browbeat the people on the southern border. Uh, asylum seekers are still people who are in this seeking uh, satisfaction. But if this money, but if this uh, money, if this, this money were, went for beds for these asylum seekers, as you note, who are human beings, and I think you would also note that the numbers of people on the border is at a crisis level. The asylum seekers in this case, would it be okay to divert the funds well, to help them? Well, it, it, well, you know, it's a manufactured crisis. The number is coming down overall. Uh, and this is kind of the pits and, 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 and highs and lows uh, that we experience. But again, uh, we, through the Trump administration, manufactured this crisis. And so what we are prepared to do in a, in a calm, mm -hmm. orderly fashion, work on a solution. But this knee-jerk effort that he continues to do uh, to satisfy his base is not working. Did you, were you uh, critical? Democrats were you critical? Not going I, to fall I just want to know. Knee-jerk response. I just want to note the Obama administration did shift funding in 2014 from disaster relief to cover the ICE budget in 2014. Were you supportive of that shift of funds in 2014? Well, but he shifted it consistent with what the law says. Mm -hmm. As you know, this administration is a month late on the shift. Mm -hmm. So uh, I understand that there are things that happen, but if the guidelines say you have to do it within a certain period of time, uh, you can't come a month later and do it and say, oh, well, uh, we just have to do it. We have regulations. Even Donald Trump in his administration has regulations, mm -hmm. whether they want to follow them or not. Chairman Thompson, thank you so much for being with us. And I do want to note, as this storm passes over Florida, our meteorologist just noted it could head into the Gulf of Mexico and Mississippi perhaps could be in the path as well. So good luck to you. And I know the people in your state uh, are, are looking for help. So thanks for being with us tonight. Yeah, thank you very much, John. All right. Still to come, former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis warns of, quote, storm clouds gathering and a threat he believes is from within. Reaction to all that from another ex-Pentagon insider, that's next. Former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is taking maybe not so veiled swipes at his former boss, the Commander-in-Chief, President Trump. In an essay published in today's Wall Street Journal and adapted from his upcoming new book, Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead, Mattis writes, quote, A polemicist role is not sufficient for a leader, and he goes on to say, when my concrete solutions and strategic advice, especially keeping faith with our allies, no longer resonated, it was time to resign. You may recall that General Mattis resigned from the Trump administration back in December after clashing with the president over the withdrawal of U.S. troops in Syria and Afghanistan. Joining us now for a reaction to the words from James Mattis, retired Admiral John Kirby, a CNN military and diplomatic analyst who served as 
Pentagon press secretary in the Obama administration. Admiral, thanks so much for being with us. I wonder how you read these words from Jim Mattis, because when I saw them, particularly the two quotes we just read, they were not so veiled comments on the president. No, I think clearly you can take away from those words that that he's that in to some degree, maybe even a large degree, Johnny's talking about uh, President Trump. They're very much, I think, in accord with the words he used or at least the tone he took in the resignation letter that he submitted back in January, which I think was actually more direct uh, than this op-ed. But you also have to keep it in a larger scope. This is an excerpt from a book, a book that he's been working on since before he became the secretary of defense about leadership. And, and so a lot of these ideas, while they certainly can be applied to, to Donald Trump and probably do in his mind, also apply to larger principles uh, that, that Jim Mattis have developed, has developed uh, in a lifetime of service to the nation in uniform. It, it always did seem a little bit of an odd coupling, General James Mattis in, in President Trump. And Mattis basically acknowledges that in the piece, saying that not only was he surprised to have been chosen for the post, yeah. but he also went so far as to recommend other people to the president for the job. Right. He's not uh, he's not an ambitious man. I, I never worked directly for him or under him, but certainly I had lots of exposure to him in my time at the Pentagon. Um, and he's, he's very humble. He's very thoughtful. He's not a climber. He's not a guy that's always looking for that next star, that next big job. Uh, so I wasn't surprised that he was so, so surprised to be asked or that he was willing to demur and to offer other people uh, up for it. It's just it's just his leadership style. You do, though, disagree with another point that he makes. He says when the commander in chief calls you and asks you to serve, yeah. you have to serve. You don't take quite that view. No, I don't. Um, uh, I, I Look, when you're in uniform and the commander in chief asks you to do something, unless it's unlawful or unethical, of course, you have to treat that like an order and you march off smartly and do it. When you take the uniform off, as I did in 2015, and the president then asks you to do something, it's your choice. You make the decision to do it. And, and to say that it's not your choice, that you just have to go along, I think diminishes the role that you're about to take on. And it also, I think, could send a message to the people that you're going to be working with that you don't really want to be there. You want them to know it's your choice. Uh, I, I, I left the, the Navy in 2015, and then Secretary Kerry and President Obama uh, asked me to come on to the State Department as the Assistant Secretary of State. I made that choice, and I'm proud that I did. I'm proud that I worked in that administration, and I own it. Secretary Mattis owned his departure with that very powerful letter, but I worry that he's not willing to sort of own his decision, his choice to join the administration. And I, I, I worry that, 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 that some people could construe that as him trying to escape the scrutiny of being a member of the administration. To, to that point, if he does have specific criticisms of this president and the administration, do you think he owes it to the American people to write them perhaps more directly? No, I don't. And I, I, look, uh, the idea of writing a memoir when you leave office, that is, that is again, a choice. And not everybody did it. I work for Secretary Chuck Hagel. As his press secretary, he did not write a memoir when he left office. His, his uh, predecessor and his successor uh, both did. This is a personal choice. He's obviously chosen to do that. But I don't think it's required to do that. I don't think he has to be out there on every issue. If it's something that really matters to him, something he feels passionate about, then, of course, as a private citizen now, he has the right uh, and the opportunity to do that. But I don't think we should consider it as an obligation of his now that he's no longer in office. Admiral John Kirby, great to have you on as always. You bet. Thank you. All right. Coming up, a trip to a Pennsylvania farm where there are plenty of soybeans and plenty of discontent over the Trump administration's trade war with China. Tonight, President Trump is facing new pressure from some of the very voters who put him in office. So he won Pennsylvania by fewer than 50,000 votes in 2016. 
360's Gary Tuckman went to a farm in rural Pennsylvania where back in 2016, members of one family all cast their votes for Donald Trump. Today, with the China trade war especially impacting farm life and farm business, that landscape has changed. Here's Gary's report. Rick Tellez runs a 750-acre family farm in western Pennsylvania with his father and uncle. They have dairy cattle and grow crops, but nothing is more financially important than the nearly 300 acres of soybeans. What percentage of your soybeans is exported? Uh, 100% of my beans. 100%? Right. And he believes almost all of it has gone to China over the years. But with President Trump's tariff war, China is no longer buying U.S. soybeans. Income has plunged 20% on this farm over the last year because of that. When you're operating on margins of less than uh, single-digit percentage margins, 20% is very devastating. Uh, I don't know of any business out there, any businessman out there would keep his doors open where he would have to take his own equity out of his own uh, That's what you're doing? Yes, the farm's using the equity it's built up over the years just to survive. Rick's father, Frank, has been farming here for 70 years. And his Uncle Tom is a 60-year farming veteran. All three of them voted for Barack Obama twice for president. But three Novembers ago, they were among the many Pennsylvanians who helped decide a presidential election. Frank, who did you vote for for president in 2016? Mr. Trump. Right? Trump. Mr. Trump. If the election were today, Frank, would you vote for Donald Trump? No way. Couldn't happen. No. An increasing number of farmers nationwide are frustrated with the president's trade war with China and how his tariff decisions have affected their lives. The Tellers family believes the financial crisis they are dealing with could easily have been avoided. Yes, I'm angry at him, sure. Do I hate him? No, I don't hate the guy, but yeah, I'm, I'm upset with what he does, what he did. The nation's farmers strongly supported Donald Trump for president in 2016. And as of yet, there is no indication of a massive farmer exodus away from Trump. But there's also no indication this crisis is coming to an end. And with more than 14 months to go until Election Day, there is plenty of time for farmers to get even angrier. And a lot of time for farmers to worry if China's population of nearly 1.4 billion people will ever be the customer it once was. No, we'll never get that full market back again, no. Uh, and why do you think that? They've just gotten too many new suppliers that will cater to them. Other countries. Exactly. And Gary Tuckman joins us now. Great piece, Gary. The question is, the Trump administration is giving billions of dollars of aid to the farmers affected by the trade war with China. Are, are the farmers you're talking to, are they grateful for that money? Many farmers, John, are very grateful for the taxpayer-funded aid, including the family we talked to today. For many farmers, it's a lifeline. But every farmer I've talked to for the story, whether they like Donald Trump, don't like Donald Trump, don't care about politics at all, would far rather make a lot more money selling their product to as large of a customer base as possible. Yeah, they want to work. All right, Gary Tuckman, thanks so much for being with us tonight. I appreciate it. Up next, a new departure from the 2020 Democratic presidential race and new polling from voters on who they want to be the nominee. As of tonight, we're now down to just 20 Democratic contenders for the White House. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand dropped out of the 2020 race a couple hours ago as she was about to fail to qualify for the third Democratic debate in just a couple weeks. Gillibrand was unable to meet the donor and polling requirements put in place by the DNC. And speaking of polls... A new one by Quinnipiac University shows Joe Biden at the top of the pack, like almost every poll, at 32 percent, 
followed by Elizabeth Warren at 19 percent and Bernie Sanders not far behind at 15 percent. Chris Cuomo joins us now for more on the race and a look at what his team is working on for Cuomo prime time at the top of the hour. Chris Gillibrand out. And I have a feeling more may be about to follow soon. John Berman, this is one of those magical moments on television where I cannot hear anything you've said. So I'll pretend I know what you were asking, which I believe was, how do you manage to look so youthful yet have such gravitas? That is an interesting question. Unfortunately, there is no answer. But I can tell you this. Tonight, we're going to look inside the poll numbers that have been rolling out about what the true picture of the Democratic race is. And I don't think it's about numbers. I think it's about narratives within that party. What does it mean that Gillibrand's out? What does it mean going forward? Then we're going to have a member of the Trump campaign on to see how she will sell the actions of this president just from today to the American people. Let's take that on. And again, JB, if I had an answer, God love you, I'd give it to you. If only Chris knew I was asking about what hair color he used. Mm. He'll find that out at some point. Mm. Chris Cuomo, thank you very much for joining us. Pretending to listen. You're very smart. Bye-bye. I like you and I'd like to kiss you on the nose. See you in a few minutes. (laughs) All right, take him off the screen. Just take him off. Block him out. All right, President Trump lashed out again at cable news today, a cable news network. And guess what? It wasn't the one you think it was. Details straight ahead. Among the many things President Trump found time to tweet about today was his growing unhappiness with Fox News. Fox News. After criticizing the network for airing an interview with the communications director for the Democratic National Committee, a conversation he said was heavily promoted, he also lashed out against Fox News anchor Shepard Smith, along with commentators Donna Brazil and Juan Williams. Then he posted this, quote, I don't want to win for myself. I only want to win for the people, the president said. The new Fox News is letting millions of great people down. We have to start looking for a new news outlet. Fox isn't working for us anymore. Perspective now from Brian Stelter, CNN's chief media correspondent, host of CNN's Reliable Sources. And that phrase, Brian, working for us. us. Fox isn't working for us. What does that tell you about the way the president thinks about Fox News? That he thinks about Fox as state-run TV the way Fox's critics do. That has been the charge for years as Fox has become Trumpier and Trumpier, as shows like Hannity and Laura Ingram shows, they become the definition of the network. The news side's been squeezed out. And it seems Trump wants it to be squeezed out even more. He wants even less news and even more pro-Trump propaganda on the network. And I think it shows an insecurity on the part of the president, because oftentimes he lashes out when he sees Democrats on Fox. He sees Bernie Sanders, or today, a Democrat Democratic spokeswoman. It's as if he doesn't want his fans to even hear about his Democratic rivals. Now, how is that phrase working for us Mm. being received within Fox News? There's been some shrugs. There's been some eye rolls. Uh, It seems the president's done this more than a dozen times this year. And he's escalating. He's becoming more blunt in his anger about Fox and his feeling that Fox belongs to him. What is notable is that normally when the president attacks a news outlet, the way he's done with Axios, denying the reporting about the hurricane, the nukes, Axios defended itself today. Well, Fox never defends itself. Fox spokespeople never respond. The company never comes out defending its journalists. And that was the same today. Uh, 
Uh, I think Fox feels it can't really speak out against the president because many of its viewers love the president and stand by him. Traditionally, for the, for the president, Fox has been a sword and a shield, a sword against his critics and a shield uh, to defend him against criticism, against controversy. But it seems he wants an even stronger sword yeah. and shield. He's not even satisfied with Fox. I also say Brit Hume went out of his way to lash back yes. at the president. Yeah, and say, we are not supposed to work for you. Uh, this one, once again shows the president doesn't understand the basis of journalism. And at that point, that's really the signature feature of the Trump presidency. It's the attempt to destroy the shared truth that we all believe in as Americans. Well, that most of us believe in in Americans, that there are some basic facts and common ground. It seems this week by attacking Axios and The Washington Post and Fox, and of course, his usual targets like CNN, he's once again trying to, to further erode the idea of a shared truth. I know it's hard to graph this type of thing, <laughs> but if he's lashing out at Fox, which yeah. he doesn't do that often, and, right. and Axios, which is an organization that the White House has had a good working relationship with. Yes, that's with. right. That's true. What does that tell you about his thinking these days or the way he feels that things are going this week? He's thinking about re-election. He's thinking that he may be very vulnerable. That is what the polls indicate. And I think he's hearing that in the news coverage as well. What we know is that as this presidency goes on, he tweets more. But the tweets individually have less impact. The tweets are helpful because we get a sense of what he's thinking at any given time. But he's actually tweeting more and more and more, trying to get attention. It's working less and less for him, even at Fox. I will note, we've got about 30 seconds left. He's watching this show tonight. Yes, and it not seemed Fox like News. he is. Yes, he was tuning in, watching you earlier, talking about the border wall, once again trying to deny the reporting from the Washington Post and CNN that he wanted to offer pardons if people break the law to get the border wall built. What I always wonder, John, is when you're a White House aide or a government official mm -hmm. and the president's denying something that he said to your face, mm -hmm. how do you square that? What does that feel like when the president's lying mm -hmm. about you? Great question. Brian Stelter, thanks so much for being thanks. with us. I really it. appreciate it. The news continues, so I'm going to hand it over to Chris Cuomo primetime starts right now.